vegan. If you think we're on the run, we are the boys who will stop your little game. We are the boys who will make you think again. Cause who do you think you are kidding, Mr. Vegan? If you think old England's done. Here's our second part of our discussion with Errol. We had a great, lot of great feedback from the first one, so I hope you like the second one just as much. Cheers. And what was the distance? Uh, what was the distance? And um, how far did he actually travel before he basically flipped off the side, uh, probably dead on his feet? Um, well, to most people, it might sound a bit unreal, but if you've... If you've practiced and trained and honed in your skills to call what you would call a long-range shooter, uh, it was 523 metres. And the reason why I took that shot was Greg and Simo have trained me over the years as to first thing hand loads and really honing in how to hit a, hit a group at half a K, no worries. And the second thing was being confident in your shot. If you're not confident in the shot at that distance, do not bother whatsoever. It's a waste of time. Um, the third thing was for me to close that ground from where we were to where he was would have been, as you know, in the high country, 500 metres can be two, three, four hours hiking, which was the case of this big boy. Um, so where did I hit him? He ended up about three to four hundred meters downhill and whether he was dead on his feet or not I, I presume he was dead on his feet because there was only one way to go and gravity took part of it and he was straight down the hill into the creek bed well, we were we were sort of errol we were glassing greg and i were sort of set up with the uh, tripods and our, and our binoculars and we we're just watching 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 and dust hit him and he just vanished instantly like Click your fingers and he was gone. We're like, nah, you definitely got him. You definitely got him. Yeah, yeah. He turned straight down and ran straight down. But it took us. Then, it, took, it took us quite some time to figure that out. So we went over there and spent a couple of hours walking that face, and you know, we we'd, we'd shot a waypoint with our GPS and and rangefinders, and so we knew where the shot had taken place. But it just took us like an extreme amount of effort to actually find him and who find it, we went back to the where we took the shot and then walked just on to it with the UHF and that's how we ended up finding him. Well, the, the fact that he was 500 metres away shows um, the killing power of, of a pissy little 308. Yeah, absolutely, and absolutely. Yeah. And it also it also shows the ability of a three hundred eight to kill a large amber stag. And and, and at that right. range, it, it absolutely smashed him. Like there was no rearing up, and you know, and there was no sort of theatrics. He, he was like boom, pollaxed. You know, that's right. I think I'll just bring one thing up at the moment is um all these modern calibers we've got out these days and there's nothing wrong with them and evolution in calibers and ballistics and rifles and hey it's bloody good to see what has happened in the world but 
when you mention to people, oh, you got a 308. Oh, 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 that old pea shooter. Oh, that bloody thing. Um, let's not forget the last 100 plus years of what a 308 or lesser caliber has done. Um, you know, let's, let's have a look at um, the 3030 in the the buffalo world in the US where we're talking about millions of buffalo which is just a largest game animal around if, if you put it in the right spot and you know where to put it um, no matter where you know there is a there is a distance where you would say no and, and so I certainly have my distances where I would say no but at 523 meters I knew I was capable of hitting you know the size of an apple at that distance and that's why I took the shot and he was dead, still, broadside, wasn't walking, wasn't moving. And, you know, as history would tell, he ended up in the fry pan that night. Well, and the other thing, too, was that it was perfect conditions. It was absolutely not a breath of wind. Perfect visibility. You know, we had our, we had our atmospherics all sussed out. And, you know, we've got our, got our hand loads down to a fine art. And, you know, we're getting sort of SDs of... Single, single digit SDs and stuff like that. So we, we can get very, very repeatable results because we put the time in as well. So that's the other thing that, that sort of put the ball in Justin's court for that little particular shot. But yeah, the shot placement is everything, Errol. We're, we're really, really uh, um, into that too. Realm, I suppose you'll put it. Realm. Thanks to you and Greg, Simo, you know. Before that, I was just spraying the side of a barn with some paint, really. But, uh, well, yeah, but, you know, you're always a good shot, though. You're always a better shot than me. Just uh, wow. 40 yeah. years of shooting slug guns would have to add up to something. Um, uh, a lot of dead spoggies. <laughs> <laughs> Errol, I've been, always been wondering how much have you been able to, to learn about Samba? And... Um, how have you been able to learn so much over the time that you've been, how many years have you been dedicating life and study into this particular game animal? Well, after nine years of, eight or nine years of bushwalking with a rifle from about 1979 to 1989, I became totally frustrated um, with knowing so little about the deer that I could not find unalarmed deer and despite how fit I was and how far I could walk in a day in the mountains it made no difference I think I shot one samba for every 12 full days of hunting and often they were on the run and even with 375 Holland and Holland when it wasn't a perfect shot it took me ages to find them so 30 years ago I commenced my study and if someone had told me how much I would learn about samba behavior I'm not trying to be cute here. I simply would not have believed them. I have learned so much, it has literally blown me away. So my newly acquired knowledge taught me that for the 10 years from 1979 until 1989, during which I had literally bushwalked with a rifle, that not only had I made every mistake in the book, but I had made them over and over and over again. Frustration and dissatisfaction to knowing very little about their behaviour and as a result, 
being unable to find unarmed deer became the catalyst for giving up the rifle in late 1899. And the rifle I gave up was one I had custom built for me by Jack Miller in 3006. And I sold it to buy my first professional quality camera and telephoto lens. And from that point, knowledge became my trophy. And as a result, I spent every opportunity recording the life of Samuel with camera and pen, and in more recent years with video as well. And I have absolutely no regrets. It's been an unbelievably satisfying journey. When I was guiding, I sat there and, and coached the guy. I sat beside him while he squeezed a trigger on a 30-inch tag and a 28 and a half and a 28, and I never, ever felt... Um, that I wanted to be the one, that I was missing out. I was just happy to be there, happy to help these guys who really wanted to get a trophy. But I made every opportunity to learn from every deer that we shot. We did post-mortems. We measured their feet. We measured the pellets that came out of their butt. Uh, I, measured the, I measured the deer with a Coglin's cattle uh, weight estimation tape to estimate their approximate weight. I estimated, I weighed the gut taken from hinds. I weighed the, the weight of a hind once uh, she had been gutted. Weighed spikers and all that, this sort of data is in volume one of my book. But I must say there's never been one or even several aha light globe moments when many pieces of the massive jigsaw of Sama behaviour has fallen into place. Rather, it has really been an amazing and incredibly satisfying journey during which the countless pieces have slowly but surely fallen into place to create a fairly clear picture of what these big brown deer do. So there's no uh, magic light at the end of the tunnel for us, Errol, where we're going to become... Um Samba gods all of a sudden? Do you mean do we have to work 30 or 40 years of our life to get to where you are? Well, I know it's immodest of me to uh, say so, but quite frankly, if you read the books I've written, you've got to learn. And look, so many blokes, I, I can tell you a story. One bloke had given up Samba hunting. Um, because he couldn't find out anything about Samba. No one would tell him anything. He couldn't, he never saw a deer. He never shot a deer. He'd given up Samba hunting for 10 years. And then we produced, published volume one, Secrets of the Samba, Biology, Ecology and Behaviour and Hunting Strategies, volume one. And he bought the book. He sent me an email and said, Errol, I got up to page 78. I had learned so much about Samba behaviour. It was he said, I read it Saturday morning. I went out Saturday afternoon and I shot my very first Samba stag after reading 78 pages of volume one. Uh, true story. Look, we've just had countless feedback from people who have read just volume one. Um, and the testimonials, and re the testimonials are a lot of them are on our website, who have shot big stags and hinds and for the first time ever have been watching unalarmed Samba and uh, picking, their, picking the deer they want to shoot, uh, waiting for it to stand broadside, setting it up properly for the shot, using bipod shooting sticks, uh, ranging the distance instead of guessing it across a gully, 
and and killing deer you mainly with one shot. Yes, and from underpowered calibers like two seventies, seven millimeter oh eight, three oh eight, and thirty oh six. Don't really know how they did it, but somehow the gods must have been with them. Some good good comments there, uh, Errol. Um, like you say, uh, underpowered calibers, but also um, for anyone that's ever delved into the, we'll call it the long range world, which it really isn't if you're educated enough, uh, a range finder, uh, a steady shooting platform like a backpack on the ground or even better, a bipod and a ballistics calculator on your phone, which costs about 10 bucks these days. You know, you can take a, an educated, well-placed shot at a distance beyond 100, 200 metres and know you're going to hit an apple at the distance you choose. And if you're, if you're um, uh, I would say, happy or um, trained at that distance, then, then take the shot, you know. Hey, look, uh, Errol, you were talking about, you know, obviously um, you've had a lot of success stories um, from the guys that have read your books and gone out and applied, um, you know, uh, 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 the words of wisdom within your, your, your smart hunt system. Um, look, and I guess, you, you know, it's off the back of understanding a degree of predictability around the behaviour of the Samba. Um, have, have you seen, well, I'm guessing you have seen, uh, what are some of the sort of more predictable behaviours of uh, Samba that you've come across? Yeah, I'd just like to introduce that by saying that the many aspects of their behaviour which are predictable to a fairly high degree have been a great surprise to me as I never expected to find this. In fact, before I commenced my study, I used to believe, and I, I wrote at one stage, the only thing certain about Samba behaviour was uncertainty itself. However, uh, my study proved that that wasn't quite true. And I'll mention a few of countless aspects of their behaviour which are predictable to a fairly high degree. The first one, they spend most daylight hours bedded whilst ruminating, mostly staying alert, interspersed with intervals of a minute or so sleeping. The distance that they ascend before bedding has a sweet spot. Um, these deer are big, brown, lazy animals. They only walk as far as they have to, to where they're going to be comfortable and secure. They do not walk any further than that. And in my books, I've outlined, I've specified in my overlay specifically how far that is, what the range, typically the range they will walk from a feeding area and ascend to a bedding area. They do not walk any further than they need to. Um, how each extreme type of weather causes them to bed in a different location that is uh, one that is so crystal clear. Extreme weather causes them to bed in different spots 
different locations, different aspects, different elevations in a gully. And Samba do the same things every 24 hours. What changes every 24 hours isn't what they do, but where they do it. And that is determined primarily by the weather and to a lesser extent, hunting pressure. Simply because they have to contend with weather 24 seven. It's always there to be content, be contended with. False hunting pressure and predators, well, they come and go, but the weather never does. It simply just changes. Yeah, I know certainly when we were in the high country last time, we were we were uh, used uh, the words knowledge out of your book to capitalise on on very cold evenings. Uh, the next morning when the sun first came up, um, and that that got us eyes on a lot of deer, um, which was really good. But um, look, I guess with the with the hunt smart system and obviously all these different behaviours that you've identified with Samba. Um, does the hunt smart system um, and those behaviours translate into possible success with other species of deer, or, or is it more specifically samba? No, it it applies to uh, not just deer, but a lot of other uh, creatures. And uh, look, hunters have been using my hunt smarts, using some of these hunt smart system overlays ever since I read uh, the first volume of our book, which we published in 2006. An example which springs to mind was told to me by a hunter. He rang me up to tell me this. He'd been hunting chittle near Charters Towers. It was a very windy day and he couldn't find any deer. Then he remembered reading about zones of silence in volume one. So he searched for one of these quiet zones and sure enough, he found a large herd of chittle standing shoulder to shoulder in a spot where there was absolutely no movement of the herbage. Another reader of volume one, Andy, uh, Adam Bundy from Northern New South Wales told me how he, he found wild boars and foxes bedded in zones of silence in forested mountain country in Northern New South Wales. Um, and one, another example that springs to mind when I was guiding, one morning I was guiding fellow hunters. We were contouring across a windswept face, heading for the lee side, which I knew would be a zone of silence, and that is where the deer, I expected the deer to be. Sure enough, the moment we contoured onto the lee side, there wasn't a breath of wind. You could hear a pin drop. So I signaled to the father and son to drop slightly to the ground and I glanced around the contour into this large, quiet zone. And within moments, I spotted them. A small herd of fellow bedded peacefully. The sun harvest one with a single shot before they had any idea they had company. So look, when it's windy, all creatures move the zones of silence. So every creature on earth dislikes wind. And many... But all the prey animals that have to rely on their senses to survive, they all move to zones of silence so that they can capitalise on their acute hearing, vision and sense of smell, which they can never do if, if they're in a windy spot. And all the reasons for this are explained in detail in a chapter by that name, Zones of Silence in the Huntsmart System book. Um, it's, I think, a really intriguing, fascinating aspect of 
the behavior of all prey animals, not just deer. It 100% works, Errol. I've tried that theory many times. The latest was two days ago. Uh, living in South Australia, we've had some absolute ball tearing weather fronts come through the last few days, almost like mini cyclones. And uh, a little a national park in my backyard is chock-loaded full of feral... I won't call them feral, but uh, that's what our government calls them in our state anyway. Uh, full of uh, fallow deer and um, looking for these deer where did I find them after reading your books a couple of years ago yeah in the zones of silence 120 130k hour winds uh, sideways hail sideways rain and I thought where are they going to be yeah in those deep gullies no wind no rain no hail and lo and behold there they were so the zone of silence punters for the uninitiated deer hunter that's probably the one of the biggest things to put on your list is work out where you can find your zone of silence when chasing not only deer but all kinds of um we'll call them species in australia so Errol, I'm just sort of, I'm aware that we're taking up a fair bit of your time now, but, um, and also, given that we've, we've all read your book and, and uh, uh, don't want to give too many of your secrets away, are <laughs> um, you comfortable to sort of to, to lay any more detail out um, for our listeners around, around your zone of silence and how that relates to other deer movement? Um, I think they should read the book on the zones of silence. Um, I yeah. think it's, it's, it's a really intriguing chapter. Um, uh, takes a fair amount of explaining to put out the detail. Yeah. Well, look, I but mean, one of the things it, we've, we've applied it and it works. Uh, it does. You know, we, the, the three of us can actually vouch for that for sure. Yeah, but the understanding of it, uh, I think it's, it's a nine-page chapter, so there's a fair amount of detail to explain it all, to fully understand the whys of it. Why do prey animals gravitate? Uh, but certainly one of the reasons is that with deer, in samba deer in particular, um, wind makes them highly nervous. On a recent training course, we were watching deer. We are watching uh, a samba hind and her three-month-old calf and the wind was blowing everywhere into this gully head that we were watching. And I knew uh, they would eventually get our scent because the, the wind was blowing everywhere. The wind was, as they call, hunting. But so why did I go to that vantage point? Well, it's a part of the training course. It, it's a necessary point to go to. And, and usually the wind, uh, the wind isn't doing that. But in any event, the guy said to me, Errol, are these deer always so nervous? They always nervous like this. Look at the calf. It's looking back over the back trail, the hind stopping and looking everywhere. The calf's got its tail up. And no, they're not always that nervous. But in wind, they are. Wind makes them nervous. And so no doubt these particular deer, they were heading for the only very small zone of silence in this large gully head. That's what they're heading for. But before they got there, sure enough, they got our scent. Then straight away up the steep face, zigzag over the top and gone. 
But look, the other thing that you can apply to uh, improve success on other deer, every, every creature on earth, quite frankly, I've devoted 62 pages in the HuntSmart book to explain the wagon wheel, the road map of Samba movement. Samba, fallow, red deer, white-tailed deer, elk, black bears, grizzly bears, um, the mule deer, any species you want to mention, wild pigs, foxes, from all parts of the world use the wagon wheel concept to traverse their landscapes. And th this concept really is simply based on an elongated wagon wheel where you've got the rim, um, the hub, which is the feeding grounds, the spokes, which are the game trails that link feeding grounds to the upper ring, which is rim, which is around their bedding area. Uh, where they're likely to bed. Uh, this concept is the same for all species. And it's interesting, I, I sort of tapped into the Wyoming uh, Migration Initiative study. And um, it's, it's very interesting. In fact, I bought all their books after listening, after listening to a podcast, um, the Meat Eater podcast, where they interviewed these uh, wildlife biologist from the University of Wyoming. And, um, and so I tapped into them, bought all their books, studied their books, and watched a lot of their videos as well that they post, and which, by the way, I also share with friends on Facebook. But you see the deer, they don't mention anything about a wagon wheel concept. In fact, they generally don't mention anything about how weather affects their behaviour. But I just see exactly the same things happening. The animals are doing exactly the same thing. You see them going single file. You see them going up the spokes. You see them zigzag up steep faces. You see them go through saddles. You see them do all the same things. And I've got uh, game, tremor, game cameras uh, on saddles. And you just see the number of animals that use saddles. You And I have them on spokes as well. You see the number of animals that use spokes. And um, it's just quite fascinating. Uh, so many creatures are the same, even Homo sapiens. One of the things I wrote in volume two or two-page chapter is you want to understand Samba, understand human behaviour. There's so many analogies that's quite amazing. It's pretty noticeable, isn't it? Um, when you say the wagon wheel system, well, let's just bring it down to layman's terms. What's the most direct route to the pub for most people? And there's normally a trail <laughs> that leads from the country town to the pub. Well, there's a spoke. It goes from one place to another. And that's a, that's a layman's turn you know Stu humans are one of the most simple people to work out so um, you're trying to work it out for an animal for a game animal uh, it, you know it's just it's very easy to, to, to uh, decipher what they're doing yeah, yes there's no doubt go on yeah, sorry, Errol, you know, and, and you talk about wagon wheels, you talk about r repeated behaviour of Samba deer um, uh, and capitalising on their behaviours. Now, in your book, um, you provide a long list of overlays, um, obviously to help 
uh, you know, the hunter in their hunt in their chosen hunting area pinpoint where the deer may well be or are going to be. Um, you know, what what are these? Can you tell us a little about these overlays and what they relate to? Yeah, look, first of all, I'll just repeat this. Sam would do almost the same thing every 24 hours. What changes every 24 hours isn't what they do, but where they do them. And where they do them is driven almost entirely by the weather. Because as I said previously, unlike hunting pressure and human activity, which comes and goes, Samba and all other species have to contend with the weather 24-7. Just like Homo sapiens, Samba and all other creatures on Earth like to be as comfortable and as secure as possible. So wherever these essential needs are satisfied, that is where you will find them. The biggest consideration is weather conditions at that moment. So all these, most of these overlays, they're not all, some relate to distance, how far they travel, but and some relate to hunting pressure, but in the main, they relate to every type of weather condition. Everything from uh, minus 10 to minus five to zero to five degrees to 12 degrees to 18 degrees to 25 degrees, 30, 35, 40. What they do in, um, in, in light wind, what they do in cyclonic wind, what they do in light misty rain, what they do in medium to heavy rain, what they'll do in snow. Uh, I've covered all of these various weather conditions in detail to explain where the deer will be. And in fact, look, we've gone to a lot of trouble to actually do wide angle photos of the spot, a close up actually of the deer, then lens inserted into that wide angle photo, an orange silhouette of that exact photo of the deer. And then every photo I put in that book shows date, time, weather conditions, Temperature at first light, the temperature at first direct light, which is typically three degrees less than first light, where the deer were, what the deer did, it's all explained. Everything has context. After all, everything in life has context. If you don't provide context to things in life, it's meaningless. But in this book, I've gone to the nth degree, and so has Lynn in her design to show total context for the animals, where they are and in what conditions they, they were there. That's why the book is 464 pages, because we've used huge amounts of high-quality photos. And one of the things that I made a point of doing, you know, I had a lot of photos with lesser quality Nikon camera gear, even though it was very expensive. It was nothing like what's evolved in the last few years. And... Um, I had those photos, but I wanted the very best photos. So, look, quite frankly, I spent an enormous amount of money on an 800 5.6 Nikon lens, uh, put it on a Nikon 500 body, which increased the focal length by 50%. And I went out and out and out until I got the best photos showing Samba sending up a spoke, turning onto a wagon walking on a wagon wheel rig, uh, walking through saddles, coming through saddles, coming through pinch points, coming through all sorts of funnels. And I just kept at it until I got the best photos that I could possibly get. 
So you could say, yeah, I'm passionate. Well, that's absolute truth. If we're going to do something, I'll do it right. Do it once, do it right, and not happy unless I've got what I consider to be the best, best result possible. And no regrets. It's a good way forward, Errol. With all the courses you've done over the years, and I've no doubt you've probably done hundreds now, if not thousands, have you been able to measure the success with the kind of people you've been teaching, with the, with the you know, the layman's as well as the experts? Because I would understand that you've probably got people that would consider themselves as an expert as well. I've spent 10 years in the high country chasing deer, but they've done your course and there's been like a light bulb changing moment. Like, have you been able to, to measure their success as far as what you've taught them? Yeah, well, that's interesting um, because, look, we've never gone out solicited uh, success stories, as I call them now. Ne never solicited them, but because I'm sure it's because our HuntSmart course has instantly changed the way participants hunt and the knowledge has enabled many to enjoy consistent success and in some instances, instant success, many of these participants have been, been so incredibly happy with the result that they have willingly sent us countless success stories. And uh, we've posted 71 of these on our website just for our training course alone. Then there's countless others for our success stories from our books. And some of these have been sent by interstate hunters who had not hunted salmon before attending the course, but were successful in a few days afterwards. Look, I've had hunters come from Cairns, Townsville, Broome, um, Northern New South Wales. They've never hunted salmon before. They've booked the course. Uh, they've stayed on afterwards to go hunting straight away. And most of those guys have had instant success within two or three days of the course. Never hunted salmon before. Look, a, a hunter who's armed with correct knowledge can turn the tables on what is arguably the most difficult game animal. Uh, one chap, uh, very kindly, Brett Cook, a participant in New South Wales, sent us an email which read, within 23 hours and 24 minutes after leaving the Masons, this is what I've, I have taken. The accompanying photo showed a 28 by 28 inch trophy stag. And Brett's entire success story is number is number one of the 71 on our website. Uh, to get that email was just, you know, uh, quite frankly, so humbling. So it made me so happy because Brett had shot his first Samba stag 10 years earlier and told me he hadn't seen another one since. So he come and did the course within 23 hours and 24 minutes. He's shot a 28 by 28. So look, you know, I, I'm very analytical about the, the what I teach and it's the success, proven success of what I teach. And I know just from the number of success stories that come in, it's got to be right. Not only that, look, I, I test my own hypothesis. If I say, think that the deer in this condition shouldn't be in that aspect, I'll go and watch that aspect. Sure enough, they're not there. They'll be where you expect them to be in those weather conditions. 
I've read stories of guys uh, hunting the wrong aspect all morning, not finding a deer, and then suddenly crossing the ridge and hunting the correct aspect for the weather and um, didn't, didn't find just one massive stag, but he found two plus a whole small group of hinds and younger animals. Nothing on the wrong aspect. Everything was on the right aspect. These animals are just like us. It's exactly the same as humans. They want to be secure and comfortable. I think uh, our first trip into the high country was total ass. I would call it. I think uh, me, Simo and Greg, we saw 40 to 45 Samba on our first trip in a four-day trip into the high country. I won't say what valley we went in because um, as Samba deer hunters know, sharing your location is like sharing the keys to your wife's garter belt and we won't be doing that anytime soon. But yeah, um, we just fluked at that year. And now that we've read your book, it all falls into place. That was just a, a total coincidence of weather, location, wind direction, temperature, altitude, all of these things fell into place and we just happened to be there. You know, just a couple of lame ass guys from Adelaide that fell onto the right hill of the right place. And um, not that we took a deer that year, but we, we learned a hell of a lot. Well, I think the other thing too, mate, is that um, that was a really heavily hunted valley too, and we didn't know that at the time. Uh, we just fluked we just fluked it that we chased some uh, bad weather in and there was no one in there. So when there's people who haven't been in there, you know, they go back to doing the same thing every 24 hours, you know. That's right, they came round the other side of the hill, other side of the mountain, depending on the wind, the wind direction and the front that was coming in. Um, I've heard this one many times before, Errol, the, the hero to zero or the zero to hero, you've got all the gear but you've got absolutely no idea. What equipment do you reckon a Samba hunter should have? And it doesn't need to be a million dollar setup. It, you know, not everyone's got a million bucks to spend. Some of us are on the bones of our ass, and some of us just can afford, you know, your basic wet weather gear, a rifle and some binos. But what's your your minimum kit to be a successful Samba hunter? Well, obviously it starts with your rifle. And like you just said, um, Justin, you don't have to spend a lot of money on a rifle. You know, a Tika T3 typically shoots MOA out of the box, out of the box. Howard 1500s often shoot MOA or better out of the box. But whatever rifle you've got, you've got to spend whatever it takes so it will shoot three shots consistently into at least one inch at 100 yards. The, as I said, the idea that you're shooting at a dinner plate is a myth. It's just total nonsense. More like... The vital aiming point you're shooting at is the size of a grapefruit. That's it. It is definitely not a dinner plate. So the more accurate your rifle, the better, especially when you start shooting at distances out to 300 yards and longer. 
The other thing I insist on in a rifle is a silent ergonomic safety catch that cannot be accidentally disengaged. Um, I've tried some of the more complex safety catches and boy, if you were being charged by a lion, mate, you wouldn't have a hope and hell of getting it off. You'd be eaten before you, you got off the first stage. And I, I wonder how in the hell they ever became uh, recommended for African hunting, dangerous game. So my favourites are the Browning Safari Grade Morsey 98 sliding side safety and the Remington 700 sliding side safety. Neither can be easily disengaged. Each requires a fair amount of a firm downward pressure to push them off, but when you do push them off, they are 100% silent. There is no noise. And given that Sam can hear my camera shutter at 240 metres, it gives you an idea of just how unbelievable acute their hearing is. That's the next thing. It's not on. even a, a twig snapping, is it, Errol? That's that's way beyond a twig. That's that's like clicking your fingers at that kind of distance, isn't it? Yep. Unless you've got a mirrorless current mirror, mirrorless cameras, which are silent. None of the DSLRs are truly silent, and the sample will hear them at two hundred plus. The amount of times I've proven that, I mean, it's quite frankly, it's endless. I could talk, I could give examples about that till the cows come home. I've certainly got it on video. And here's the interesting thing about that the hinds have better, much better hearing than stags. They are the, they are the real trophy. Stags aren't the real trophy. Hinds are the smartest of the lot. They're the ones who protect the group. And through evolution, they have protected their young. The stags haven't, the hinds have. So that has honed their hearing throughout evolution. Hinds will hear the shada. Stag standing behind her has no idea what's going on. Hind gets up, takes off, and stag says, oh, is there a problem? Oh, what's going on? Oh, I guess I better follow. And that's not one example. That's many. So there's a problem with everyone just shooting all the stags because it's decimated the is decimated stag numbers and left a huge number of hinds out there. Why some people have reported seeing 150 hinds in four days and not one stag. Hinds are the real trophy. Hinds have incredible hearing and senses compared to the Samba stags. If you catch a Samba stag out in his own, I think he's, he's in the pot. But if he's with hinds, they're the ones that will get you every time. The next thing is you've got to have a bright scope, which, in my opinion, has a German number four reticle. An illuminated red or orange dot is an added advantage in very low light. I know guys who have bought high-quality top-end scopes and have been unable to take a shot at a Samba stag in low light dark samba stag in low light because they could not see the fine reticle on that in that scope and the hunter that was with him that had a much cheaper scope with a german number four reticle had to take the shot it wasn't his turn and he shot the stag without a problem but the guy with the high-end scope with a fine crosshair uh without illumination was not able to actually take a shot he could not see the reticle so a bright scope, but you don't have to pay mega bucks to buy a good quality bright 
scope with a German number four and even with illumination. Uh, scopes we see on our website, you know, they're sub $1,000. Um, uh, they absolutely has got all the things that the three, three and a half thousand dollar scopes have got. No, but you don't necessarily need all those bells and whistles. Uh, but overall, they're good quality. They're very good quality. And I say this because I don't want people to think, young blokes, that, oh, I can't go samba hunting because I can't afford all the top-end gear. You don't need the top-end gear. You must have the top-end knowledge. That's what counts. Then you've got to have a bipod. And, look, everything I've mentioned has, has come about through, you know, necessity. Necessity is the mother of invention. When I was guiding bit by bit, when we found stags in their beds and we didn't know the range, I knew we had to have a range finder. When the guy couldn't take a shot off his knees on an up, up, uphill angle shot sitting on this, a descending slope, I knew we, I had to buy bipods. Uh, when a guy came on the training course and showed me a safari sling and demonstrated how it works, I knew from then on uh, that was the last conventional sling I would ever buy. A safari sling is the perfect slim sling for sand hunting and makes, in my opinion, all other slings obsolete. I would not use anything else. You've got to have a bipod which extends silently and quickly from sitting on the ground height to standing position. A bipod is essential for taking accurate shots at deer and all other game for that matter, especially when you're sitting, as you typically are, on a descending slope and shooting across a gully. You've just got to have a bipod that gives you, you know, at least three or four feet of extension so you can dig it into the ground, tension it away from you and make that perfect shot instead of wounding the deer. Uh, Harris bipods that go on the front of your uh, sling swivel, stud, forget them. They're not suitable for samba hunting. I've tried the Harris uh, 27C lightweight, which extends to 27 and a half inches. doesn't give you anywhere enough uh, extension on a descending slope, where, which you'll typically be on. If you're not down off the spur line, down that slope, and you're on the spur line, guess what happens? Yeah, sure, you might be able to lie prone and get a shot. But the big risk is, and it's happened to me, the next errant breeze will catch you because you're exposed to the breeze. You're not down off that spur line. It will catch your scent and carry it straight to the deer. And with 30 seconds or less, that deer has got its nose in the air and it's gone. So the idea, you know, and if you're moving, and silhouetted on a spur line, they will get you every time. I've actually, how do I know? I was guiding a guy once and it was 299 yards on the rangefinder and we broke cover, fully silhouetted moving on the spur line and this dag just stopped dead in his tracks and stared at us 299 yards away. And while I'm on that point, he shot was shot with a 375 Holland and Holland, complete exit, not perfect shot placement and that deer went hundreds of metres and he ran off as though he he ran off as though he'd never been hit. Uh, he didn't show any sign of being hit for about a hundred yards when he went to jump over an old stock fence. And we didn't find the first, despite complete exit, we didn't of the bullet. We didn't find one spot of blood for 114 paces. 
So just another example that, you know, muzzle energy of big calibers does make does not make up for poor shot placement. And the, the other thing I mentioned is bright binoculars, which have adequate depth of field. Brightness and depth of field are essential. So many times guys come on the training course with $400 binoculars, and after comparing them with the ones we have on the course, Swarovski's, Likers, Vixens, um, they just think, I might as well put my money in a pile and burn it. Typically, the binoculars you get for three or 400 bucks just are not at that quality. And one of the things they really suffer from is no depth of field at all. It's just so critical. It's, well, it's, they're simply, uh, you simply can't use them. Uh, depth of field and bright binoculars, and you don't, again, you don't have to pay, you can buy those binoculars for $1,000 less. You don't have to pay three to three and a half thousand. If you've got the money and money's no limit, then buy the top end stuff. By all means, if money's no problem, go and buy the best. But don't think that you definitely got to have the best to be an adequately equipped Samba hunter. I can go on with a couple of more examples if you'd like me to. Uh, look, Errol, I think we'll probably um, we'll probably start thinking about wrapping it up. But um, it is interesting what you what what you're talking about when it comes to depth of field, because Justin and I have got <clears throat> a quite a good pair of binoculars. Greg picked up um, some Leica Ultravids a little while ago, and even though Justin and my binoculars are, are very very good and very bright, really nice glass. The depth of field that Greg gets out of his is is incredible. You know, we're we're very very happy with ours, but the depth of field that you can see through those likers of Greg's it's amazing. You know, when you do a side by side comparison. Something Greg taught me was um, you can't shoot what you can't see, and until I owned a good pair of binoculars, I didn't really understand that because you're looking through your scope on a hill. Oh yeah. Can't see bugger all. There's nothing out here. Buy yourself a good pair of binoculars. And it's like, oh, there, there's a crow over there. There's a bird. There's a fox. There's a wild dog. Oh, there's a goat. Oh, there's some deer. And um, Greg's 100% correct. You can't shoot what you can't see. And you don't need, yeah, the million dollar set. You just need to be able to see them. I'm thinking, um, Errol, you've really covered off on most of the questions we had for you there. Um, I'd like to, before we go, tell everyone how they can find you for a start and how they might be able to get a, get a hold of some of these books we've been talking about. So, so how do people find you, mate? Oh, they can simply go to our website, which is um, sambadeer.com. No AU, just sambadeer.com. And through that, they can contact us. Um, they can uh, see all the, the books, take a look inside of all the volumes. They can read testimonials and reviews. They can re read success stories for the books. They can see testimonials and reviews for uh, the training course. They can see all 71 success stories for the training course. Um, and all those things can be purchased uh, online. 
They can book online for the training course, pay a deposit, pay the full amount online, or they can contact, contact us direct simply at errolmason at sambardeer.com. Yeah, great. Thanks, mate. We, uh, we, um, we were wondering if you were still doing the uh, Hunt Smart courses, actually, because we know you sort of had a change of residence and that, so we weren't quite sure if you were still doing the uh we, we're quite sure if you're still doing the training course but that's good to know we, we we'll probably have to hit you up at some point and come on over and do it with you because uh we've really enjoyed what we learned out of the book so yes look um, i decided there's no such thing as retirement i'm not going to retire i'll keep doing this i love teaching people i love running the training courses and in fact um I've got training courses booked out till the end of August. Uh, I've got one starting this Friday. They all go for three days, seven people on each course. Uh, I have had to transfer all the New South Welshmen, people from Camp, ACT and Queensland, probably to a course starting 10th of September. So there are some vacancies still on courses 13th to the 15th of um, August and 27th to the 29th. I think there's now three vacancies on each of those courses due to having to postpone uh, those people who um, aren't able to travel into Victoria. Well, what I thought I'd do is, because we've covered a heap of ground here, I was thinking we'll probably break this up into a couple of of, uh, one-hour episodes, I think. Um, uh, so hopefully I can well maybe what we'll do because I don't think we'll get the second part out in time uh, given that that's only three weeks ago is maybe we can put it up, put that up as part of the promotion for this uh, podcast and, and let people know that you've got some bases available for uh, people in Victoria yeah that'd be great that'd be yeah. terrific yeah because we'll sort yeah, of we'll, I think we'll, at the moment we I must say we we have posted the fact that we have a watertight guarantee. If people pay a deposit or the full amount and they have to postpone or they're unable to postpone, then there's a watertight guarantee that all funds will be uh, refunded. Yeah, great. So that's, that's they're not, they're not in danger of losing their money by, by booking and then finding that they can't travel. And on top of that, look, I've already transferred one guy to next year. I will be doing the training courses next year as well. Uh, good stuff. Good stuff. Greg, was there any uh, any closing thoughts or any more questions that you had, mate? No, no, no questions. Um, I, I just hope that, you know, the listeners out there have got a little bit of a sample of what what's in Errol's books and uh, are keen to get in there and, and have a good read because uh, it is a fantastic read. Um, and it uh, works. Me, it, yeah, works. it works. It, it turned us from uh, zeros to uh, not quite heroes, but it turned us certainly got us yeah. off the bottom, off the bottom rung of the ladder. That's for sure. In in a very very yeah, short yeah. amount of time. Yeah. So uh, look, if you're even vaguely interested, I highly recommend. I think you will get on to more animals. We certainly did. It, it made a huge difference. And uh, yeah, look, Errol, thanks for your time. Um, appreciate uh, passing on some of your knowledge tonight. Um, been, a sheer, been a sheer pleasure. Uh, what, what I enjoy, I think, most in life has always been teaching. In my past job, that was one of the things I enjoyed most, was teaching and, well, I guess it's in my DNA.
I've got one thing Errol out on the end. This may open up a can of worms. I'm going to bring up something you brought up early on in the podcast. Uh, there was a may have been an English army officer in India. He shot a 46 and a half inch stag. You mentioned that at the beginning of the podcast, it may have been one of the largest taken. Was that in India? That was um, in the Burhanpur Valley, five miles from Elichpur, E-L-L-I-C-H-P-U-R, in central India. And it was shot by the Colonel Alexander Inglis Robertson Glassford, who wrote the book, the Blue Chip book, I should add, Musings of an Old Chikari. It is a cracker book. And when I went to India uh, to write the last book, I went there as a guest of one of the directors of the National Park, who just fortunate to have as a friend. And uh, in that book, there was a lot of uh, black line drawings and black and white photographs. It was published in, I think, 1928. And I wanted to capture the essence of what was the images that were in that book. And... Uh, and I was pretty happy that I caught, I actually did capture some of those images, even though they're in full colour. But look, that is a cracker book. Um, and so is um, Central um, Wild Animals in Central India, written by the conservator, British conservator of forests, A.A. <clears throat> Dunbar Branda. I think that was published about 1928 as well uh, absolute cracker book interesting and I quite, I've referenced these two books many times in my books with um, I don't know we're supposed to be closing up here but I'm just starting to get going actually uh, might be the rum kicking in <laughs> we've had a lot of recent I'll call it burn off but we've had some bloody big bushfires go through most states of Australia and we've had huge burn of national parks and forests and beautiful land. And at the moment, we've got some huge regrowth, which would translate to, I would think, fresh green growth. How is that going to translate to trophy heads in the very near future for Samba in all states of Australia? Well, I think the evidence is pretty clear on that. Three to four years after the burn, uh, some of the biggest heads ever recorded have been taken. Um, and they're usually taken from those areas that were burnt, as I said, three to four years earlier. Um, I suspect that, although I have no proof of it, that even the hinds become more, more fertile due to an abundance of highly nutritious succulent regrowth and they possibly have based upon this is based upon um, evidence from a samba deer farmer they probably be, have twins rather than just singles so they become the recruitment rate uh, escalates almost doubles i suspect and along with that with so many dingoes and wild dogs being decimated by 1080 poison um you know, it just completely upsets the balance. So the calves aren't the calves aren't being preyed upon. 
to any large extent. So you go suddenly, but within 10 years, you've got a explosion in Samba population. But you've got three to four years, you'll get big antlered stags. And, you know, the evidence about antlers, the research into antlers is phenomenal. You know, that's the books. I've got three of the best books ever written. Antler Development by Brown, uh, Horn, Pronghorns and Antlers by the Bubenics from Canada. Uh, another one on, specifically on antlers by Richard Goss. And the evidence by the experts is clear. Antlers are not grown by grass alone. Uh, Samba must have, another gear, must have high-quality brows to grow large antlers. Quite simple. Irrespective of their age and genetics, they've got to have that high-quality, high nutritious brows, not just grasses. And that's what bushfires produce. That's perfect. That's um, that's led on to the last question of the night. I would love to have you back, as would Simo and Greg, um, and it'll be a shorter podcast because we've covered a hell of a lot of context and um, conversation tonight. But we'll have something. I mean, we don't want to pass on everything in the books, but maybe we can have something called the. Uh, the bushfire chronicles as to what happens as the follow-on from what we have seen in the last two years. If you'd be kind enough to gracious you with your presence, and I, maybe I could ply you with some bloody good rum that I import, but um, we've thoroughly enjoyed your time, Errol. It's been educational for everyone. And like I said to you on a phone call earlier this week, you just don't stop learning. You do not stop learning. The day you stop learning is when you're packed up in a box and lowered into a hole. Well, knowledge is the real trophy. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Knowledge is what inspires me, keeps me going out there. What else I can learn that I don't know? Well, thank you, Errol. Um, thoroughly enjoyed your chat, as did the boys. Um, I hope we can have you back for uh, a chat in the future on the the bushfire chronicles, we'll call them. But um, I do hope we can catch up one day as well in the near future once these borders are unlocked and we can have a, a beer or a rum around a campfire as well and um, tell some real stories. Okay, thanks, Justin. Yeah, good on you, Harold. Yeah, you. very, very, very uh, glad you could join us, mate. Thanks so much. That's all right. I never get sick of talking about Samba. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll do like Justin says. We'll try it in person sometime, and as soon as we can get out, get out hunting again, uh, I can drop my diet and get back on the booze. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thanks, mate. Good luck with that. Yeah. See you. Thanks, mate. See ya. See ya. Bye. Thanks, mate. Bye.